Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 72. And as always, we have a special guest on the show. But before we get there, just be reminded that if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, uh, we are also available in full Technicolor over on YouTube. This one might be in black and white. Sure. Yeah, it'll ruin your intro, that won't it? <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. no. Anyway, <laughs> if, you are, if you are interested in uh, seeing our lovely faces in full Technicolor or black and white, then um, you, know, you can head over to youtube.com forward slash camera shake. Um, and once you're there, you know, why don't you just hit the subscribe button, hit the like thing and all of the bells and whistles and whatever YouTubers tell you to do. That'd be super awesome because it would help us out a lot. Anyway. Filmed in Panavision. Oh, it is in Panavision. Yeah. Mm, there you go. <laughs> now, that being said, I never understood what it actually means. No, no. <laughs> no, no idea. Anyway, that being said, we are here with none other than California-based award-winning food photographer, director, educator, and the host of the We Eat Together YouTube channel, Get Up for Mr. Skylar Bird, right here on the show. Skylar, how are you? Hey, man. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Uh, it's going to be fun. I really enjoy doing podcasts, and I can't wait to do yours. So. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we've been, you know, when we first started this podcast, or when we first decided to have guests on the show, there was like a list that I, mm-hmm. that I made of like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, and then like a list of names. Um, and no so way I made that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you did totally make Are that list. Serious? Absolutely. Yeah. Really? We've probably so, still got that great. list somewhere. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We should I actually, must have yeah, we been should... like, how long was this list? Uh, Eight thousand members. No, 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 no. It was I'm at no, the it was bottom of this, this list. Yeah. I mean, it started. It started out very small. Well, it started out with you. like. It started out with maybe like ten names, I guess, and then yeah. you know, yeah, it was number it one, obviously. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's you're in fact the second food photographer that we've had on the show. Um, only That's so true. we've had. You know, we've had yeah. a number of um, wedding photographers and a number of and portrait photographers and so mm-hmm. on. Um, but food yeah. photography is is one of those really cool, um, what do you want to call it, niches, you know, uh, of, of photography that um, um, is very specialized. And yet I feel like we see a lot of food photography on the likes of Instagram and, you know, social yeah. media and stuff. Yeah. And it's now you see it, it every day. I mean, yeah. that's that's the great thing is most people don't really notice that they actually see it. I mean, they see it probably way more than Instagram. They see it, you know, probably like 10,000 times a day, you know, TV and billboards and, you know, product placements just everywhere. So, yeah, yeah and you cookbooks and, mm-hmm. you know, cookbooks yeah, and cookbooks, recipes and stuff. The, the sides of boxes. I mean, it's really on everything. If you, if you, you know, take the time to look. So if, if you were to just say, so my, my impression of food photography is that the purpose of it is to make a consumer want to have that product. Is that fair to say that that's, that's an overarching? Yeah. I mean, in the commercial aspect, sure. Your goal is to make people want the product, whatever that product may be, you know, whether it's the pasta or it's the meatballs Mm -hmm. or it's the, um, the shopping center, you know, that people go to, or if it's, you know, just selling recipes, I guess. But I mean, truly like I'm, I'm a journalist. And so kind of, I kind of, still hold on to a little bit of that journalism when it comes to food photography 
And so for me, it still has a little bit of a historical value. Like this is our time and place in history. And this is what we eat. And this is what we put on our table. And this is the style of, you know, cutlery and plates and, you know, stuff that we use. And hopefully in a hundred years from now, when people look back and go, oh, you know, what did they have in 2021? We'll be able to show them, you know, we'll have a, a very accurate picture of our time and place where they might have not had that in previous generations and up until like the 19, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know. That's actually a really interesting yeah. aspect of it um, for two reasons. One is I'm always fascinated, you know, when you, when you look at um, like period pieces or you kind of think like, okay, so how were, how were people eating, let's say in the 17th century, for example, Yeah. you know, the fact that like, I don't know, folks weren't even invented yet or all that. You know, that I find that really fascinating to see how, you know, everyday things that we totally take for granted, um, you know, in our lives today just simply didn't exist or were used in a completely different way. Um, even the amount of s spokes that forks had back in the 17th century was different. I think they only had were two. Were they tridents then? No, I think they only had two. And like, I think people, really? isn't it, am I right in thinking that people used to bring their own cutlery to dinner? Like, almost like Is that right? know, Swiss... Really? Swiss Army pocket knife. That's like, or your, your. I really want that to be true. Yeah, no, it's true. I think really? it's actually true. Yeah. That's See, the, why can't that be the case now? Because I'd bring, you know, you get those really massive, oversized knife and forks, don't you? Every <laughs> afternoon, that's what I'd what, take. Or like the huge, I'm like, with this whole bottle yeah. of wine glasses. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah, having a glass of wine is actually a bottle. In it. There was that great uh, British comedian back in the day, and he had like the oversized phone. And you would do oh, these oh, prank, um, prank Dom shows. Jolly. That was Dom yeah. Jolly. Yeah. <laughs> trigger Happy <laughs> TV. Trigger Happy TV. That's it. Yeah, Trigger exactly. Happy TV. Yeah, yeah. And you would be that guy with the fork. The, oh, the, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> master of fork and start, you know, dishing it up. Shovel. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I the mean, other thing that I find, that I find interesting about this yeah. is, is um, we had a conversation with Sean Tucker um, in last week's episode where we were talking about so he street photography is part of what he, what he does. And we were talking about um, the fact that nowadays when you go and you shoot street, you very often find people, you know, buried in their phones. Like their faces are literally buried yeah. in their phones. And so, and I've heard this from other photographers, you know, people get a little bit annoyed about the fact that everybody's looking at their phones and it's kind of, you know, it's annoying. Um, but he had a very interesting point, not too dissimilar to yours, where he said, well, this is a sign of our times. And if we're looking back at this in a hundred years time, where phones are probably aren't even a thing anymore because we're all with brain implants or whatnot. You know, um, this is really a sort of a, a telltale sign of what life was like back in the first half of the, you know, the 20th, 21st century. What, what century are we in? 21st century. I'm so bad for Forget. Yeah, I mean, that's my opinion, really, to all photography. I mean, okay, so a little bit about me, I guess, is I started in the journalism background and I really wanted to be a, um, a newspaper photographer, like, you know, the times or national geographic photographer. Yeah. I wanted to be like a war photographer really, or maybe, <laughs> nice. maybe like an aftermath type photographer, but I, I was really focused on culture. And so I still hold a lot of that, I guess, mm. uh, when it comes to food photography, maybe not so much in the photography realm, but kind of in my mentality and the hope that in a hundred years or 200 years from now, that maybe my images will be used as a historical reference for mm. what we do, 
in this time period, you know? And so it kind of influences the props that I use and maybe the, the, the type of food that I photograph, I guess, or the type of clients that I take on, I guess, you know, um, all with this kind of thing in my head that maybe some day down the road, people will look at this and say, oh, this is what they did in 2021 or whenever I took the photograph, you know, that's my hope. See, I'm hoping that even in a hundred years, people still eat waffles. That's, you know, waffles. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big very waffle. Specific. I'm a waffle fan. I, that's, really? you know, yeah, oh, absolutely, man. I can eat waffles all day long. I think yeah, I've like American style where you throw, you know, a bunch of whipped cream and berries and syrup and fried chicken. Bars. Oh no no sweet waffles yeah I'm a yeah I'm a I'm yeah. a fluffy waffle guy that's okay. yeah wow M- much to much to the bemusement of the rest of my family because obviously you know my my kids have grown up here and uh, they like the flat like the British style you know flat thin pancakes oh yeah you uh-huh. know yeah and I'm like I'm you, more of the do you throw yeah, baked beans on those or <laughs> that would surprise me actually yeah baked beans and like scrambled eggs or something you two aren't allowed to gang up on me by the way you know that right <laughs> that's funny no, one, one of the best yeah. places last time I went to um, Lake Tahoe um, on my honeymoon actually a few years ago um, there's a place in Tahoe City called Heidi's which is like a, a waffle house basically okay yeah in Lake definitely. Tahoe yeah in Tahoe wow. City yeah yeah, it's, yeah, uh, it's a little... not too far from there, actually. Oh, great. Okay, oh, cool. where, whereabouts, whereabouts yeah. are you in Northern California? Well, I'm right now. I'm in Utah. I'm in Salt Lake City, right. but that's only about I don't know. It's a, it's pretty much a straight shot to Reno and then Lake Tahoe down below that. Yeah, right. So yeah, it's not too far away. In in British terms, it would be like going to the Czech Republic or something like that. Or <laughs> yeah, or... probably. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, here it's not too far. Away. Yeah, it's only like yeah for, you, for you, it's just a shopping trip, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I go down there and buy my vegetables and come back. Yeah, no problem. So, that's it. Uh, yeah. I need to know, um, have you guys had fried chicken and waffles? I yeah. Is that just a South thing? I haven't had that. No, no. Have... Yeah, well, it is a very Southern thing, but yeah, they have it everywhere. And if you can find a good fried chicken and waffles and with some good syrup, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh. I never thought I would like it because I'm the type of person where... If syrup comes anywhere close to my bacon or my eggs or ketchup <laughs> or anything that's <laughs> like sweet comes anywhere near yeah. my savory, I, I freak out. And it's got to be like separated. There has to be like the wall of China <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in between, you know, my you, using my the sausage as a break. Yeah, I see exactly. that. No, I totally agree. Yeah. I actually, I'm totally on your page. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with that. But fried chicken and waffles, for some reason, is amazing. I had it. I actually did a job in the South. I was doing a job for um, the Time Food Studios, um, I, and I made it a mission to go around and try like the local food because uh, Time Food Studios. I think it's actually Meredith now, but when it was Time Food Studios, it was in Birmingham, Alabama, and that was my first introduction to the South. It's actually like the first place I went to America after I came back to America. And mm. I was like, I have to try Southern food. And so I made, I was there for six days and I think I ate three meals at, you know, a day at different restaurants. And I was trying nice. all the Southern food and fried chicken and waffles was 
Yeah. Fantastic. I had a little rosemary honey on there. Oh, so good. Oh, so good. Yeah. All right, now I'm hungry. I haven't had <laughs> See, I mix, I mix oh, things up a little bit because I like half, like I said, half my family are Canadian and the other half are German. I actually grew up in Germany for the most part. Um, okay. And so Germany, this, you know, quark is a thing that's big in, in Germany. Quark, quark. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, uh, um, what is that? It's a dairy product. It's somewhere between, it's like a soft, it's like somewhere between cottage cheese and cheese. I mean, it's, it's like, it's very, um, imagine cottage cheese without the lumps in it, I guess, okay. you know, um, but, uh, traditionally you, you basically use it as a spread and then you put jam on top and it's, it's like the best thing ever, but I tend to, and it's, but it's like almost like zero calories. I mean, it's like zero fat. So it's really good from a health perspective. It's really good. And I use it a lot. Um, with waffles, I actually that's uh, that's kind of that's my go-to waffle topping. It's like quark and it's like strawberries. Can you like buy it in a? Can you buy in it? Like yeah, you buy it in a Yeah. Okay. And it's they, uh, they started um, maybe I don't know a few years ago they started selling it over here in the UK, and um, mm-hmm. so or maybe I'm the only person who buys that. At yes, the you are. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> yeah, sound like that it. doesn't sound like something the Brits would typically go for. That's you know it's good. We're I'm, useless at food over here. Good God. It's really bad. No, that's some good stuff. That's some Sadly, good stuff. I've, I've I've only been to the Heathrow Airport, and I, I, they wouldn't let me out of the airport. So I, right. I was I had like a layover for I think eleven hours or something one time. Oh wow! I was like, yeah. I really want to get out of the you know the airport and smoke a cigarette, and uh, they wouldn't let me for some reason. And um, right. well, it would take too long to get out and mm-hmm. then back in, I guess. You know, um, so I I never actually stepped foot on British soil, but um, I always wanted to go, you know, and uh, try the food out and stuff like that. So maybe, you know, a next trip. But I tell you what's what is actually remarkable about the UK, and this is really, you know, I mean, I, you know, I lived in, in a number of different places, uh, New Orleans being one of them. New where, Orleans, where the food is amazing. But, wow. Uh, and Germany, actually, to be honest, the south of Germany is really good food too. But um, the great, th- like, the amazing thing about the UK is, wait, you lived in New Orleans and you didn't have fried chicken and waffles? No, I didn't. But I learned how to make a mean gumbo. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the thing. But but um, but the thing about somebody the UK is, in the YouTube comments right now, you know, trying to you know uh, persecute you for not trying chicken and waffles. And <laughs> yeah, <probably. laughs> yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> how dare um, you? But I tell you, it's uh, you know, what is cool about the UK food wise is is the fact that you'll find any any ethnic food you could possibly think of in. London. Like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, fair to say true. that, I mean, this is like, cause it's such it, a. Is it watered no, down like America? Cause it, you know, it's the same with America, but it's mm. Americanized usually. And it's to the point where it's yeah. no longer uh, reminiscent of where it yeah. actually came from. I think yeah. it, it is in general, but maybe not to that extent. You can still but, find authentic restaurants. Yeah, you can. So, oh, yeah totally. You can. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. the way we, you know, are you generally gauge? Uh, you know, if it's not a, if it's not a British restaurant, it's I'll, I'll gauge because I'll, I'll find out whether, yeah, say, I want to go for Chinese food. If Chinese people eat there regularly yeah, that's, true. No. Uh, uh, that's the one i'm going to choose and go to sure. um same for t- thai food and you know french or i mean wait, there are no does, German it, restaurants. does it get worse as you get farther away from london you know as far uh, as the uh, it's probably goes? not as varied 
Yes, I mean, so basically, I think when you go to places like Birmingham, there's, you know, there's a a large um, sort of, you know, non-British population there, but maybe not so much of a variety. So for instance, you know, if you were looking for um, Asian food or, you know, or or Middle Eastern food, then maybe um, Birmingham would be a really great place to go. But I think if you're looking for like authentic Italian, then probably not so much because just as an example, you know. um, Yeah, it's the same in America, really. You know, you get outside of New York and L.A. and Chicago, the big cities, and it gets watered down the farther you get away from those, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, cities. Uh, yeah. But the then, you know, if you, Utah is not so good. Yeah. Which but then, yes, you know, the closer, point. but the, like the closer you get to the coast, for instance, in the U.K., um, the better <laughs> the seafood gets. You know, that's the, obviously uh, really? it comes, yeah. comes with the territory. Yeah. You would hope. Yeah. Yeah, you'd hope. Y- you'd yeah. hope, yeah. But I think yeah. it's kind of, it's true to say there are a lot of places that, at the coast where you can get some awesome seafood. But I don't you, eat. Uh, uh, fish, not so much seafood. Hmm. Fish, you can get l- really good fish on most of the coasts around here. Oysters, I think. Um, you can, get can you get oysters here? Yeah. Are they any good? Yeah, I think so. Well, are I, they any good anytime, though? <laughs> well, that's, that's a whole different, that's that's a different, a whole question, different discussion. <laughs> We're starting a whole whirlwind of comments on the YouTube channel. <laughs> <session. laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How dare oysters, you say you can't get oysters on the British coast? Yeah. <laughs> My Shocking family oysters. has an oyster farm. <laughs> well, uh, really? No, no, I'm just saying oh. that's what the YouTubers are. <laughs> you know, you get those comments like, you know, I don't, I don't know if you, you can I don't know if you can get great lobster anywhere around here. I don't think, not that I no, know. That's because it's, that's yeah, a main thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We so, stole them all. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Maine and um, Nova Scotia. Yeah. I know there's a lot of cool lobster up in Nova Scotia too. No, so. they don't have anything in Canada. Yeah. It's all America. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I knew I liked him. Where's the moose? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Let me, let me think. Yeah. We have moose and, um, National healthcare? <laughs> yeah, well, no, our, our moose are bigger and better, and our <laughs> national healthcare is non-existent. So uh, you guys got to speed on that one. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so no, but it's, uh, I would love to travel to England one day. Yeah, one day. Yeah. It's, it's it's so weird, you know. Like I travel a lot, and there's always every traveler has like a list of countries, and that usually is from the most exotic to the least exotic, and mm-hmm. for some reason. You know, England has been on, I guess, the bottom of the list. I, I really wanted to try, you know, and go there every once in a while, but there's always seems to be some place, you know, that's more exotic or something like that. And I just yeah. haven't made it to England yet, you know. But next, next, next time you need to um, transfer through Heathrow, just add on <laughs> another another few days to your trip and. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, I, it's, it's, around, it's, incidentally, I, Heathrow is actually, I'm driving past Heathrow to get to Nick's place. So yeah, li- and we're, both, we're 20 minutes from me. Yeah, yeah. we literally live okay. on, on either side of the airport. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's funny. That's, I, I used to be a pretty heavy smoker. I smoked like two packs a day or a pack and a half a day or whatever. And so airplane travel for me was horrendous. Oh, yeah. And going to, because I lived in the Middle East uh, for like eight years. And so I'd have to, to go back to America, I'd have to go somewhere else first. And one of the options was Heathrow for the most part. And I would avoid it because there was no smoking section in the airport. Mm. And so I'd always go to Istanbul because they had like a nice outdoor smoking section. And so, you know, I tried Heathrow once and then I just avoided it for the rest of the time. But now that I don't 
like smoke cigarettes um, and I chew Nicorette gum. Uh, <laughs> now that I don't do that, you know, uh, I could probably go back to England and fly through right. Heathrow, but I was kind of boycotting it there for a while because I think when I was, when I was traveling there, you guys were probably one of the first international airports to ban smoking just all outright, you know, for, for incoming and outgoing flights. So yeah. I was I, like, I you, Turn uh, it. there's an, there's another London airport called Stansted. Um, mm-hmm. we're like, I don't know, five airports here. Um, so there's another airport called Stansted and, um, the way that they got people to stop smoking was that they had this um, glass-walled smoking room. Yeah, and uh, it was probably the one the most disgusting. Even as a smoker, and I used to be, I used to smoke cigarettes. But even as yeah, a smoker, yeah. you'd go in there, and it was really small. Oh my god, it was yeah. tiny, and it was it was just disgusting. Yeah. Thick smoke. It's like the size Every, of a cell. Yeah, everything was yeah. like layered in like yeah. yellow tar. Yeah. Oh my god! It, it is all designed to get people to quit smoking. I swear to God, because even smokers can't handle the smoking room in airports if there's mm-hmm. any smoking room yeah. allowed anymore anywhere in the world. But you know, I I haven't actually been to a smoking room in a long time. But I remember they were really bad. You could you could you know peel off the oh, nicotine yeah. from the wall. It was, it was so I feel gross. like I, I know feel this like... has nothing to do with photography, but whatever. It's important because <laughs> most photographers I think smoke about ten packs a day to get rid of the stress. Yeah. You know, I think like you know much now, but yeah, I'm old enough to remember when you were still allowed to smoke on planes. I'm pretty sure when I was a kid. On planes, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I on think planes? I'm pretty really? sure. What yeah, you, like, I'm pretty sure that when I was a kid, I remember planes which still had the yeah, the, the, the ashtrays. old ashtrays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they don't, don't anymore, smoking. do they? I think if you get on an airplane that has an ashtray, you should be scared. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That yeah. airplane is pretty old. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But sixties. <laughs> I still I still remember it. Like I'm pretty yeah. sure. Really? Yeah. Wow. You're yeah. old. I know. I am old. <laughs> what can I say? Impressive. <laughs> I kept well. There's nothing the... wrong with that. No, yeah. exactly. You look young. Yeah. So that's it. Not young. Wow. Yeah. What can I say? Do you dye your hair? Is that it? Yeah. No, 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 not at all. It's um my my hair color is um good you know, it's the color of wisdom. That's where I call it. <laughs> Uh, it's it's got funny. more wisdom since the last time I saw you. <laughs> hey, it's uh, silver. That's why silver. I wear a hat. In in all my videos, I wear a hat because I have I have the age of wisdom going hey. on up here. You know? There you go. So, see, yeah, it's the silver brigade. That's where I'm, that's where I'm it up. Yeah. <laughs> so you you really mentioned that, that you... I'm not as old as my hair. <laughs> but you mentioned that you spent some time in Oman. Um, yeah. And, and so I know that from doing my research, of course, um, that before you got into food photography, you were actually a, like a travel photographer. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's how I got into food photography. I, I first went to uh, journalism school. So I went to a school where you study what's called visual journalism. So you just study how to be a, a photographer for, you know, journalistic photographer, but not so much writing, you know, so it's like um, newspaper photographer or something like that. And um, I, I never really got inspired. I mean, I, I really wanted to be like a war photographer and all that stuff, but that was like when I was 20. And then I realized that there's not a lot, there's not a lot of longevity in that career um especially if you want to start a family and stuff you, 
you spend most of your time traveling around to horrible places and it just wasn't really suiting my lifestyle. And I, but I always wanted to travel and that's kind of the reason why I wanted to be a journalist because I wanted to travel and, you know, experience all that stuff. But I, I figured if I could do that and still, if I could travel and still make money traveling, then I, you know, that would be more beneficial than being a, a journalist. And especially like right around that time, Anthony Bourdain really made it huge. And I was always into food. Um, and so I was watching, you know, all that kind of programming. And when Anthony Bourdain came on the scene, he kind of just opened up the mix between food and travel. And that's where really I got my inspiration not so much on the food aspect because I, I mean, I, I always was really interested in cooking and stuff, but I was never really a food photographer or much concerned about food photography. I appreciated it, but I never gave it much thought. And so I decided, you know, why not travel and take pictures? But the more I traveled, the more food became important. And I think it probably is to every traveler, you know, anyone who goes to another country, there's like, you know, two things that I really wanted to see, you know, is like, what's the great monument and what's the great food that I've heard so much about, you know? Hmm. And so as I was traveling, you know, the first country I went to was, well, the first country I really lived in, because for me, travel is more than just like a weekend holiday. It's more like go there and live there for a long period of time, whether that's a month or, you know, or more. Um, the first country I really traveled to that was for an extended period of time was Nepal. And there was, I, I lived with a family for four months in Nepal and, um, with me and my wife and, and they eat something pretty much every day. It's a, kind of like their standard breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which is called Dalbot. Okay. To preface this, it was in 2005. It was Nepal was in kind of the tail ends of a civil war at that period. And they didn't have any tourism. They used to be a tourism rich country. They didn't have zero tourism during their civil war uh, because it was like on the, all the no fly lists, you know, it's like do not visit this country and their economy just tanked. And so when we were traveling there, I don't know if it was a, if it was more so a, a tradition that they ate this meal every day, or if it was just, that's what they got, you know, uh, because the economy crashed and there was, you know, not a lot of money flowing around the country. So maybe food was scarce, but we ate this thing called dal bot and it was just rice and dal. Uh, dal is like a soupy lentil soup that they would put on top of the white rice. And that's what we ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And um, it made such an impact on me because it was the same and I just would search out, me and my wife would search out for anything that was other than tall pot because we ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for four months. So if we had something that was different, it was magical. And so ever since, you know, we traveled to different countries after that and it kind of put food into the forefront of our mind when we travel. It's like, let's go get some amazing whatever food, you know, whether it's Japanese food or Korean food or Malaysian food or wherever we were at, you know, it was like, let's go get some of that. And food became really important uh, when we traveled and it soon became something that I focused the camera on to and, and 
I thought it was an important story or important part of whatever story I was trying to tell. And I never, but I never really built a portfolio until I moved to Oman, uh, which is a little country kind of sandwiched between Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Iran, and uh, Dubai or the UAE to the north. And um, I met up with some amazing ad agencies there because I, I wasn't really uh, professionally a food photographer until 2010, 2000. 11 or something like that. And um, it's because I started working with these ad agencies that were there in Oman. Like uh, there were bigger ad agencies, but they were kind of like the local branch from that country. So it was like TBWA, which is like a huge ad agency, but it was like TBWA slash the local company, which was, you know, local to the country. And um I met these great creative directors and art directors at the ad agencies and, you know, they became friends. And so I started building a portfolio kind of geared towards them and the clients they had, which was mainly travel-esque kind of advertising portraiture, a lot of portraiture, a lot of like car advertisements or uh, cell phone advertisements. I think I did um, supermarkets but then every once in a while, they'd get like the major hotel in the city and it would be for their new menu or their new deal that they're doing for the holidays or something like that. And so it kind of led me to build a portfolio towards food um, to appease these clients because it was much more interesting to me than, say, portraiture or something like that. And, um, and so that's kind of how I built my food portfolio. And then I, I didn't really get much work with the ad agencies there because there wasn't a lot of clients. But my wife and I started getting work with a lot of the major hotels in the area, like Ritz-Carlton and Shangri-La and, you know, the Chetty and st stuff like that. And, and that led into building a more serious food portfolio and focusing on it uh, more, more seriously. But it also had to do with education, I guess. It's a long story. I don't know if you have time to hear it, but yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, Z. 100%. So you also used to teach photography. Um, yeah, well, that's the other half. <laughs> yeah, that's the other half of the story is I was um, uh, a lecturer at a university there. And one of the biggest problems that students have in the Middle East when it comes to photography is really photographing the normal things that you would photograph in the West, like your friends or models or uh, whatever, something outdoors even. Yeah, you know, like half the year in the Middle East is the outdoors are completely inaccessible to people who are used to uh, AC and comfortable lifestyle because it's, it's like, here's the sun and here's the Middle East, you know, and here's the rest of the universe. It's so hot <laughs> that you wouldn't want to step out outside of, you know, the studio to photograph. And so, for me teaching a class in that I was kind of thinking you know, how do I teach this previously uh, lecturers would teach kind of a, um, a bunch of different subjects. You know, they would teach tabletop, they would teach studio photography, they would teach travel-esque type of photography, but to little, little to no success. And I was like, well, if the students can't go outside, you know, cause it's hot, and they can't photograph 
models really because that's not culturally appropriate. Uh, what, what's left? And then I was like, well, what about food photography? Because you learn all the basics of lighting, composition. You learn pretty much everything with food photography. Much like you would learn with any other kind of photography. You learn the basics, you know. You learn how to light something. You learn how to compose something. You learn why uh, certain lenses are more beneficial than others in certain situations. And you learn different camera angles and stuff like that. So I was thinking, you know, why not? create a course around food photography and then teach it to my students and see if that applies to the other classes, mm -hmm. uh, like videography or, you know, basic general photography and stuff like that. And it, it seemed to work, uh, you know, they, they made really nice images and it seemed like they could take those skills and transfer them to the next class, whether it be portraiture or video or something like that, because it would seem to have kind of a basis in lighting. And then I, during the later years, because I taught there for eight years or something like that, six, six seven years. Um, I think I was in the country for eight years total. But uh, it seemed like towards the end, when I was thinking about transitioning back to America, I was like, well, and I was doing a lot of online teaching at that time because building online courses for students was really popular at university, still is, especially now. Um, but back then it was still kind of in the trial stages and I was like, well, let me film some of this stuff, some of these general lectures that I would do, you know, like the basics of lighting or whatever, and let me film it. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll have that. So every class will have that same video. And then I was like, well, I mean, I'll put that on YouTube and see if people enjoy it. Turns out people did. And it kind of bridged that transition from the middle East back to America. And I've, mm tried to kind of keep it going since I've been back. So yeah. there's an infinite amount to unpack there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But I think yeah. The, I mean, the, the, no, sorry. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the, the clever thing about picking food photography um, in, in that situation in the Middle East is, I mean, it's brilliant because everybody's got access to food. That's right. Yeah. You know, it was so, it was a, a lot, sometimes it was great. I mean, it was great because yes, you're right. Everyone has access to, access to food, you know, female students, male students, which is something that we don't think about in the West really, but they, you know, it's very important that um, everyone has access to it. They can all come to the studio. They can bring their food. They can set up their tabletop, set up their lighting and make some great images. Um, what was funny is that what they would see, because there's, there was really no cultural reference and food photography, you know, has a lot to do with culture. You know, you look at an image, you look at the props, you look at the type of meals uh, right now it's very Western dominated, you know, but, but so they would look at that as inspiration and they would go, well, what do I have, you know, in the middle East, what can I make, you know, to take a picture of if I wanted to make a meal or something like that. And they would come up with some, sometimes, you know, very hilarious situations that, yeah. that no one would ever eat, but they would think that it was something that we would eat, you know, for sure. But, um, but yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. And, and oftentimes it, it resulted in some beautiful photography. So. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because, um, I've, um, I've, I've come across a number of Facebook groups, um, like food photography, Facebook groups, and they seem, a lot of those groups seem to be based in India. And, um, and, and, you know, by default, a lot of the dishes that I see, a lot of the photos, and they're of very varying quality, I would say, but 
what's really interesting is to see a lot of a lot of those cultural influences in that photography you know where very often you look at it and you kind of or i look at it and i kind of go oh wow i wouldn't even know where to start with that like a i don't know what the dish is and yeah. <laughs> secondly a lot of the props that seem very you know um you know different to us in the west um will be difficult to get hold of yet it's got this 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 um like foreign beauty or whatever you want to call it you know that's it's like some somehow unusual and therefore they're, therefore very attractive i don't want to speak out of turn but india has from my experience living i mean oman was about an hour flight from india you know i think doha was like an hour hour and a half or something like that and we had a lot of uh indian um furniture stores in oman oh, right. so okay. if you wanted to like no, you know buy your buy furniture for your house like tables um and you know side tables and stuff like that you could you could go to a store where they would import the furniture from india and it was very popular um and so some of the first tabletops that i would photograph was from you know those stores because they would make this this beautiful wooden stuff that it looked a little bit rustic, you know, but it was still usable and they just had some beautiful stuff to work with as far as props and, and furniture and stuff like that. And so I would assume that in India, there's probably even more access. I haven't been to India myself, but I'm assuming that there would be uh, a lot more access to just amazing props, dishware and stuff like that to include in your photography. And then, and then you have the food. I mean, there's like, what, in India, there's like a million different uh, regions and each region has mm -hmm. just a million different spices and vegetables and mm. you know different types of dishes that they make. Mm. Yeah, to be an to be a food photographer in India would just be amazing. It was oh, actually one of my first inspirations. I saw an amazing travel story where a photographer went to India. She came back. She came back with just amazing in images, and um, I was just so enamored by that photo story that. Uh, it kind of inspired a whole whole host of my, I guess, uh, aesthetic that you see now, probably, yeah. especially in my older older work. Uh, yeah, a lot of Indian food and in actually India in general is is incredibly colourful. Yeah, colour yeah. is a big big deal over there, and they bring it into everything, absolutely everything. I've I've been to India several times and. And that is a huge thing that I took away from that place is color is huge to everybody out there. And I, I didn't travel to too many different regions, so I don't know if that differs by region as well, but I suspect I yeah. suspect it, it, it does to some, some extent. But just to be surrounded by that is just something else, really something else. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I really find it amazing when you can have a culture that keeps a lot of, I guess... I mean, like in America, we go to like, uh, what do we call them? Antique stores, you know? But, you know, so to have access, like we do in America, we have access to a lot of old stuff that people just saved and now they sell at a higher price. And I'm sure it's the same in India, but um, there's just probably just so much more of it over there, I would presume, yeah. you know, just beautiful props and stuff to work with, so. Does America have old stuff? Well, I, I was just going to say, probably well, the kind of stuff that you that you, you pick know, up in an antique store years, over there is probably you know. just, you know, they sell the same stuff in the local like here over here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brand new stuff for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is brand new, well, but it's 120 years old. Well, 
It's practically yeah. brand new. <laughs> do you, do you know, I've been looking at a lot of that stuff recently, funnily enough. And what what ends up happening is um, a lot of people from America buy really old antiques from um, mm-hmm. basically anywhere in you know Britain. Well, they bought they bought London Bridge. Didn't they? they hold it for a little bit and then they sell it back to us. <laughs> really? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's clever. And they make so much money. I like extra it. Profit on it. It's smart. Why would and you? who Why says would Americans you? are dumb? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. You think about it. Yeah. But, I, mean, I mean, when I was in, I, the closest I got to India was Sri Lanka. I did a photo story there. And I mm-hmm. also went there with my wife just on a vacation type thing. And I know Sri Lanka is very different than India, but they're still a little bit similar. And, you know, and at least mm-hmm. from what I suspect from the art that I see and the people and stuff like that. And the, lifestyle and just the stuff that they have there just regular everyday stuff i mean would be treasures in any food photographers you know prop house or or studio so it, it was kind of really inspirational as a food photographer to go there and just have be surrounded by all these things that you want to photograph and put on your table and make a picture with you know it's yeah. just amazing and the food is out of this world so yeah, because that's yeah. really, I mean, that's really a thing that, that I noticed when I first got interested in food photography was, um, was really that it's really this, um, this play between the food itself and all the props that go around it. It's just, it, you know, there's so much um, thought that needs to go in, not, you know, the background um, or the, the tabletop itself and you know, every little thing, like the plate that's, that the food is presented on and all everything else that goes around that. Um, and in in my own little way, when I tried to reproduce um, so, some of that at home, you know, I've, I actually found a really um, what's the word? It was like like food for the soul almost. The thing when you come at it from a portrait photographer's point of view, and it's especially you know, I do a lot of headshots, for example, where things things have to move and things are relatively quick. Um, I find that whenever whenever I I shoot, um, you know tabletops and stuff like that i'd like to take the time i enjoy taking the time i enjoy t- you know moving things by like a fraction of an inch and then you know and trying things and moving stuff around until un- until i've got it right um is that something that draws you to food photography as well yeah i mean i guess the you know the biggest difference between portraiture or travel when compared to food is that with food, you're creating the entire environment, Hmm. you know, where travel, you might be creating a little piece of it, but it's still kind of rooted in whatever is surrounding you, whether it's the cityscape or the landscape or whatever. And so there's, there's parts of the photo in a travel picture and a portrait that you can't change and you have to just work with. And that becomes, you know, I guess I was watching a previous podcast of yours. You're talking about car photography and you're talking about how um, like your whole idea changed when you realized that first you must just find the location and then put the car into that location. You know, so it's kind of the same with food photography, only all of it is in your mind. And Mm. then you just, you have this blank kind of canvas and mm. you build this world within this little frame, you know, whether it's a yeah. vertical or horizontal frame or whatever. And so everything, the lighting, everything from the props 
to the mood, to the food, it all kind of has to work together to, to tell the story that you're trying to tell, but it all comes from up here because there's a million different decisions that you can make. Like you're saying, you can move, you know, things a fraction of a inch or a millimeter or whatever. And it, mm. you know, could effectively change the entire story that you're trying to tell. Yeah. And so that's a, an attraction, but it's also uh, very difficult. That's the, probably the hardest part with food photography is getting everything working together, I guess, from the props to the lighting to the food, all of it kind of working harmoniously to tell one singular story, you know? And where, as with travel, you can kind of just, you know, oh, I found a great location. Let me just stick something, whatever that Mm -hmm. something is, you know, depending on what, who's paying you, whatever Mm -hmm. that something is to put into that photograph. And I think, I think if you're a travel, this is, this was me at least when I was a travel photographer, I wanted to control everything. And as a food photographer, I would love it if there was pieces that were completely out of my control and I could just be like, yeah, that's how it is. You know? So uh, yeah, I think, uh, I don't, I can't remember what your original question is, but that's, that was my take. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you find, you know, now you've been photographing food for so long, and you know having to come up with that creative idea of what to surround that food with do you find it difficult now to keep coming up with something that's fresh um you know get an inspiration for how this is how this plate of food is going to look different to the one i did five years ago you know or last week or whatever yeah that's really difficult because it is very repetitive no matter even if you change the props like composition for example is really repetitive and it can oftentimes make you think like you're doing something wrong because you're doing something that's so very similar to something that you've done before and that's a feeling that you don't really get with other types of photography Mm -hmm. um unless you revisit the same place over and over again i guess uh but with food photography i i think at least for me it's kind of goes in a progression of styles. I want to say it's like a progression of styles that I rotate and rotate back out of and then rotate back into again. So maybe like for months and months and months, I'll be very rustic, I guess, or very traditionalistic where Mm -hmm. everything in the scene is very natural lots of wood or whatever you would find in your typical kitchen, you know, and then I'll go kind of commercial where it would be like a solid color, like really bright and poppy Mm -hmm. and it'd be very minimalistic, you know, and then I'll go back to wanting to fill the frame with all my little knickknacks and stuff, you know, and making the composition completely full and there's no negative space because <laughs> that annoys, you know, food photographers. Um, and so it's something like that, you know, where that kind of keeps your interest, I guess, you know, changing it up, going from, you know, I guess editorial to more commercial, back to editorial to more, you know, uh, abstract or something like that. And so you can kind of change the styles of food photography to keep your interest. But yeah, you're right, because you're confined to, you know, a, a, 
a rectangular frame or whatever you shoot, the format that you shoot in, you're confined to that composition. So there's only so many ways that you can move a circular plate or a square plate or a cutting board around the frame before it's very similar to a previous photo that, yeah. that you made. I mean, there's probably only like, I don't know, 10 compositions that you can do in food photography. So if you're looking for that kind of variety in your work, then you're kind of going to be disappointed, I think, in food photography. But if you're looking to tell stories or if you're looking to tell something about, or if you're looking to say something about a specific genre, then I think there's infinite you know, possibilities mm, yeah. in that aspect. Do you find that your your change between, uh, just to give the couple of examples there, you said between sort of the rustic style versus the commercial sort of solid color sort of style. Do you find that you change that just off your own back because you want to do something slightly different for a few months? Or are you reacting to what is kind of popular at that time and what is, what, what you know, just for argument's sake, what hotel restaurants are going to want? Yeah. I mean, that's really difficult to say. The artist in me says, I want to follow, you know, I just, oh, I just follow whatever, you know, whatever fate leads me to. But, you know, everyone has to make money. So it's like whatever you think is going to make you money, really, as a photographer. Um, I've been lucky to find a niche, I think, in kind of the stuff that I do. And I don't even know what it is that I do, uh, per se. You know, I don't know what really people find attractive about my work, uh, but some people seem to find it attractive. And, and so I, I keep doing more of that, I guess, because uh, that's where the money comes from. Um, and if I, I know other photographers that, that shoot completely abstract, completely commercial work, you know, solid colors, hard light all that kind of stuff, very geometric shapes. And I love that stuff. I think it's fantastic. And that's all they shoot. And it's, it's very polar opposite of generally the stuff that I shoot. Um, and, and yeah, they probably make more money than I do. So (laughs) do you follow, I mean, do you follow the money or do you follow what you're passionate about? I think it's kind of a split in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of, you kind of have to do that as a starving artist. You know, you have to kind of find where where the paycheck's coming from, and then See, I've build your portfolio this. to that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've always wondered this actually, particularly with uh, food photography, especially when you work, you know, for clients. Um, I've always wondered how tight the client brief actually is. You know, on yeah, one hand, because yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. Because you could, could you, you, cause you could think on one hand, well, you know, <clears throat> the client books you because they like your style and that's what they're after. Or, you know, on the other hand, it could be like a client books you because they have a very specific idea and they know that you can pull that one off. So that's, you know, that's why I'm always wondering, like, how, how tight is the client brief or does it vary from project to project or from client? I would to say it varies a little bit depending on who's hiring you. Oftentimes it's mm-hmm. not the client. Like in my experience, at least, it's rarely the client. It's usually the art, like an art director from an agency mm-hmm. um, or a creative director from an agency. And they are looking at, very differently than the client is looking at. They're pitching you to the client uh, because they like whatever they see in your work, they think it's special and they think that it could be used for project A or project B or whatever. And so I think this kind of goes back to 
when I was saying I was like an advertisement photographer, I was doing food photography at that time, but nobody cared. I was getting work because I guess the friends that I had in the ad agencies saw promise in the work that I was doing enough to trust me with a portrait shoot or a travel campaign. If, you, if that makes sense. Sure. You know, they, they looked at my go, oh, okay, you can light this food photograph. So obviously you could probably light a person on a cliff somewhere. And I think that's where I got some of my work uh, earlier on. And now I think it's more kind of more heavily in the, the people who are approaching me like my style of food photography and they hire me specifically for that style. Sometimes I get approached by people who go, oh, I love, you know, obviously you're a great food photographer. Um, let, let's see if you can do some of projects in more of a commercial, I guess, more of an abstract kind of commercial sense. Um, but I, I would say most of the time they hire me because uh, my style aligns with the project that they're, they're working on, you know. Just to get slightly... Hold on a second. Perhaps... Sorry, there's like the fire brigade is outside my window right now. Oh, that's cool. We've we've interviewed people in New York before. It's, uh... <laughs> it's... <laughs> yeah. I have my studio. My studio is right next to the firehouse. Oh, Perfectly right. planned for a YouTube cool. studio. Um, okay. Just to get kind of slightly behind the scenes, because these are sort of questions that, you know, that, that we've had and I know we've been asked before as well is... Um, take those art directors who, you know, are, you know, pitching you to their clients for whichever project it is. How, uh, what's the easiest way to, how do those art directors know about you in the first place? How do you, how did you get on their radars? That's a good question. It used to be, it used to be that I would send out promo, you know, like promo cards. I would send out promo cards. Mm -hmm. I'd send out promo emails. Uh, when I first came back to the States, well, okay. If you're living outside of the States, <laughs> when I was living outside of the States, uh, in the Middle East and in Asia, you could just walk into the places and be like, Hey, I'm looking for the creative director. I'm a photographer. And you would get a meeting. That's how I did it. And I, you know, I'd get a meeting and I would show my portfolio in the States and probably in England as well. You can't do that. You know, they have security. Um, so, <laughs> so, so when I first came back to the States, and even before I left the States, uh, I used something called Agency Access, which is like a company that, you know, has a list, like an ongoing list of all the art directors and creative directors and janitors at every ad agency known to man and every publication, you know, known to man. And they would keep an updated list and then you, you, you would pay money, you would use that list and you'd send out an email um, or a promo card or whatever. And so when I first came back to the States, my initial, my initial thought was like, oh, I, I just have to go back to agency access because they were around before I left the States and they're still around. You know, and I, you pay them a bunch of money and you get this list and then you just work, you know, your fingers to the bone, creating emails and, a, you know, with a little portfolio saying, hey, look at my stuff. 
and then you would use their list and send it out. But now, like I haven't used them in probably three or four years. Now everything is coming through. I don't know what I would say Instagram, but I'd also mm-hmm. say YouTube as well, hmm. um, which is really kind of strange to me because it's kind of the first time where I've had in the last couple of years, I've had at least I'd say five or six clients say, Hey, we saw your video on YouTube. Uh, can you do something for us? And, or I had one, I even had one client said, Hey, I was looking how to do this on YouTube and I ran into your video. Could you consult or could you do a project for me? You know, could, could you consult me how to make my team better or, or whatever? So this is, this is something very new, you know, like having that experience and same with Instagram, having clients, having your Instagram port profile be your portfolio is something new to me. I mean, I've been, I guess I've been a working photographer since 2005-ish, I guess, 2006, you know, so, and I've been outside of America. So I've also been outside of the whole kind of social sphere of, of what's going on in the West, you know, and kind of been doing things old school for, for most of my career. So coming back to America and, and having your Instagram and having your YouTube channel be the probably a, a, a very important part to your marketing sphere as a photographer is something new to me, but it's definitely something that I would say the vast majority of now of my clients, they've ran into me on Instagram or they they've seen a, a video on my YouTube channel. And then they went to my website and they found out my kind of professional work. And then they contact me and say, Hey, can you do this you know, job or whatever? So that's, I would say that's how they run into me now. Um, but still active promotion. Like I still send out emails on a regular basis to, to like our directors and stuff. The problem with those lists is that like with agency access and other lists like that, that have art directors and creative directors is that the, the lists aren't instantly updated. You know, the, mm. there's a, a lag. Some people might change jobs and they don't update the list and then, then they're just emailing no one. And most of the time, like, I've talked to my agent about this. Um, most of the time, those lists go, uh, those lists, the emails that you send go to like nowhere. They go to like, yeah. uh, you know, an empty inbox. They filtered out mm. that, that email. They found that way, you know, found a way to filter those emails out like 10 years ago or something like that. So, yeah. So I would say most of the time it just comes through direct messaging of people and mm they find me through Instagram and YouTube and then my portfolio. It's interesting. So it, it shows how important whatever you have out there is because people will find it in some way and it needs to show what it is that you actually do and what you can do. But do, do you also find that um, aside from new clients, you get you know, um, uh, the same art director coming back time and time again? Because uh, he really likes your work and push it, pushing it, pushing it forward. One of the most like things that makes me the happiest is when a like a art director, or creative director, or someone in, from an agency um, who hasn't hired me before, but still emails me about future prospective jobs or whatever mm-hmm. that they're working on. I think that's the most gratifying, I guess, because I'm still yeah. on their radar. You know, like even though that I haven't worked with them. And they, they contact me and say, oh, hey, 
you know, I know we haven't worked together, but I still have, I have another job that just mm. came down the pipe and, and, and uh, you popped up in my head. I think that's, anytime that's that you cool. pop up in their head, it's probably mm. the best feeling ever, you know, that you're still on their radar, mm. even if you haven't worked with them. But yeah, of course, if you worked with them before and they come back, that, that, that just says you did a great job. And yeah, that doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs> but I mean, not because I don't do great jobs. It just, it, <laughs> you know, the thing about photography, I think a lot of people don't understand about being a, a professional photographer, not just like a Instagram or a YouTuber or whatever, but agents, like people from agencies, creative directors and art directors, they're looking for not just like a, a square hole to match it or a square peg to match a square hole. They're looking for something that is so specifically matching that hole that there could be no other photographer other than the one that they chose. And so they might have like 10 photographers that they're reaching out for a singular job. And all those photographers, if you were like put, put them on a wall, I'm sure they'd all, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart, you know, but they're looking at the, the very finest details that would make or break that job. And hmm. so and once you get to a, I've always said this to people is like, once you get, there's a level, it seems like there's a level. Once you get to that level, everyone else is in that level with you. Mm. And so there's, I think a lot of times people think that there's, there's like a staircase in photography and you start out at the bottom. And as you move up and you move up and move up and people think that there's going to be like a platform where you get to, where you're the only person on that platform. And that's not just not the case. Yeah. Every platform you get to in that staircase, there's also 10 million other people on that same platform at the same time, you know, and they're all moving up the staircase with you, you know. Yeah. So I think no... it's not too dissimilar, not too dissimilar from like your portraiture or headshot photography, you know, for example, where, um, <clears throat> you know, you can, you can, like when you get to the level where you can really, you know, produce like a really high class headshot, for example, you'll immediately find, you know, do you think like you've really got the lighting, you know, dialed yeah. down and, you know, you, you can really connect with your subject and all that kind of stuff. And you very quickly realize that that's actually a given at that level. Mm -hmm. That just puts you on the same level with X amount of other people because that's just the, the way you need to be at, you know, you know, to shoot at that level. And that's, you know... I think that's that's um, that's probably probably the same. But what kind? What advice would you give some someone who is, you know, wanting to get into food photography? Um, you know, maybe somebody somebody who has an affinity for food or loves cooking and photography and, and so on and so forth, and somebody who's thinking of um, really specializing um, in food photography and getting into that into that industry. What sort of advice would you give somebody like that? I would say before you get into commercial food photography, maybe do a like recon of your local area and say, is there any clients in my local area that I could work for? If I was, you know, if you're just getting into food photography, I would, I would ask yourself, okay, if I was the best food photographer, who would I be working for in my area? And if there's no one to work for, then maybe I would reconsider. <laughs> <laughs> the, as, a, as a food photographer, um, 
you're really restricted. You're restricted by your subject. If your subject doesn't look absolutely amazing, then it's going to be very difficult to make great work that will get seen in the mm. commercial space, I guess, if that's what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, you can cook your stuff yourself. And a lot of people do that, you know, and a lot of people make that transition and they become really great chefs and they also happen to take pictures of their work and then, you know, those pictures get recognized and then they maybe get commercial work because of that. And that's one way, that's one avenue to start. Um, another avenue is kind of the way I did it was, okay, I'm surrounded by all these five-star hotels because I live in this touristy area. Um, and so there's opportunities there that if I build a portfolio, I might be able to shop that portfolio around to my local, you know, scene and then, you know, get some clients and make some better work, you know, and then, you know, be able to sell that better work to, you know, other areas. So there's that avenue too. So that's what I'm talking about. If you have, you know, if you happen to live in that, uh, a space where there are, already some maybe lower end, easier access clients to get into, then it's, yeah, then it's perfect. Um, but if there is none, you know, you have to, I think this is, I don't know who said this, but you have to really love your subject to be a good mm -hmm. photographer of that, that subject. Yeah. And I, I think if you have no passion for cooking, uh, you have no passion for food, then you don't really have much business being in, in food yeah. photography, because everyone that you're going to meet has a, this, you know, extreme passion for food. And as they should, you know, your prop stylists, your food stylists, your photographers, your creative directors, mm -hmm. everyone has a passion for food in that space. So if you're the one that doesn't, then you're kind of the oddball out. Mm -hmm. And I think photographers can really fall into that trap, you know, because See, thought... we kind of, you know, find interest in everything. You know, so See, I thought this uh, a lot of the time we have a lot of uh, like chicken shacks here, like um, we call them dirty, dirty chicken shops. Um, <laughs> it's it's like, you know, they're little like independent, like chicken places. And uh, a lot of the time when you look at their um, their menu photos, I have the best story. They are abysmal. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how to sell any how to sell any food, and I, I really want to know who who shoots who shoots. <laughs> right, that's so like, it's freaking terrible. On that, on that, right. So there is a chain here, small chain, but they're all all over the country, and they sell fish and chips, basically. Right. We're not. Don't mention We're not naming. No, them. we're not going to name them. No, we're not going to name them. Um, I'm trying to think. Which, there's a fish in the title of their name. That's all I say. And if you go into their shops. And you look at their, you know, they usually have it on those list up kind of yeah. boards, if you like, a bit like Burger King or McDonald's, all of that kind of stuff, right? And they had their 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 photos were done in such a way that they took photos of the chips mm -hmm. and separate photos of the the fish. <laughs> so chips, by the way, are fries. Are fries, yeah, yeah, and and composited it together, right? Very badly. But that's what they did. It's like, all right, fine. Looks awful, but fine. But they did add a separate photo for small and large fish and chips. Do you know, know what they did? Or just made the chips They just larger. zoomed in. <laughs> that's all they did. They zoomed in and made Brilliant. the fish that bit bigger. There's more. There's more. It gets better. It gets better. The one shop that I'm thinking of right now, which is uh, close to us, 
is they did something called a masala fish, mm -hmm. right? And they cooked it in the batter had some kind of masala sauce or you right. know, spices or something like that in there. And what <laughs> what they did was they photoshopped the fish to make it red <sighs> rather than <laughs> actually photographing Beautiful. a separate masala fish. And then did a small little large version of that as well. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. It's see the thing that fascinates me is like when you go to <laughs> When you go to like a burger chain, say McDonald's or, you know, Burger King or whatever, and you look at the photos on, on the menu, and of course, you know, the stereotypical thing is you get your food, you know, you order the Whopper cheese, double Whopper or whatever, and then you open the thing and you open your box and you go like, that doesn't look anything like it does in the photo. I find that fascinating because my mind immediately works like, ooh, I wonder how they did that. Yeah. I wonder how they made it look like on the photo and stuff. You know, so I'm, I'm immediately in like... Ah, did they use glycerin on the tomato or the whatever it is? So right? you didn't go full Michael Douglas. Well, you know, but, you know, so I'm immediately thinking, I'm fascinated by that. But what fascinates me even more is, like, when you when you go around to one of these, like, little dirty chicken shops around, you know, around here. <laughs> that's what they call them. <laughs> And uh, and and you look at the you look at the photographs on their menus, like on, on the posters in the in the shop window, and you kind of go, you didn't even try. Like, yeah. <laughs> you didn't even try to make it look good. What is wrong with you people? Are you trying to sell anything? Yeah. But so um, I, I think, you know, part of what fascinates me about food photography, um, and that's also like, uh, you know, food in terms of food and, and beverage photography as well, is yeah. I'm, I'm really uh, fascinated by, by all the things you can do to make something look fresh and and attractive and you know and whatever else, um, because I like the sort of behind the scenes, the technical stuff, you know. So, yeah. like, how much of the food that you shoot relies on on that kind of you know in frame uh, enhancement, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, I want to, I want to say it's like 50, 50, really mm -hmm. to, go, to go back to the, the McDonald's things. Actually, there's a great YouTube video. McDonald's produced their own YouTube video of a photo shoot because I think they get this at, they get asked this question a lot, you know, why does their photographs look so different than, than what happens, you know, in your bag or whatever, what you get in your bag. Um, which I guess a lot can be, uh, blamed on the steam that's that's emanated from the sandwich mm -hmm. and encapsulated yep. in the cardboard box or whatever they put that thing in, mm. you know, the burger in, um, which kind of melts everything together. Um, but they show a, a really great behind the scenes on how they do their photo shoots, uh, which is fascinating. But that being said, for me, it depends on the client, really, and the type of food. I guess most of the food shoots that I would do for clients rely on two things, either spritzing with water or brushing some olive oil or whatever your oil of choice is on whatever the subject is. Um, and not a lot, not a lot of like past that. Some, I mean, if you're going to do a beverage shot, for for example, you're going to be spritzing it and you're going to be adding probably glycerin 
and most likely there'll be fake ice. Like, uh, I can actually show you some, but like acrylic ice or they make a, a resin, a resin version of ice, um, which can be homemade and I think looks better anyways. And it also floats like ice. Yeah. I can show you something, but, um, maybe in a second, but anyways, um, yeah, so there's that. And with drink photography, it's a whole different beast. And I think that it's really important that people separate, I guess, food photography and break it up into its little compartments because each Mm -hmm. little type of food photography requires its own separate skills in lighting and photography and styling I, it, it's so very vastly different you know i mm. guess a, a comparison would be maybe in portraiture i guess would probably be a good comparison you have your high school portraits you have your model portraits and then you have your supermodel portraits and then you have your environmental portraits all these different types of portraiture that basically require the same kind of photographer with the same set of skills, but each one is so vastly unique that they require very specialized skills to master each one of them. You know, like an environmental portraiture compared to a fashion, you know, portraiture would be so vastly different. You know, it's the same kind of with editorial food photography and commercial beverage Mm -hmm. photography for, for that, you know, for that matter, like commercial beverage photography, there's nothing, you know, really real in that kind of photography you know everything is plastic or glass or resin or glycerin or water spritz or something like that i mean so with my kind of photography i would say mostly relies on real food um and very light styling the styling happens in the cooking process it's cooked Mm -hmm. in a specific way to make it look beautiful you know, like the grill marks are mm-hmm. are impeccable because the cook or the food stylist, you know, spent time and dedication and honing their craft and making those grill marks amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so as – and also with, with food photography, just like any commercial kind of photography, there's a whole team of people that specialize. Mm-hmm. And each one of those specializations requires – you know, a lot of dedication in that skill. Like there's the prop stylist and then they're the prop stylists are dedicated to having a unique eye and vision to amazing props and amazing styles and props that, that differ from each other because they tell different stories about the subject, you know, and then the food stylist, usually food stylists are trained chefs. Um, usually they went to school for it or they have a lot of experience in cooking and then they also know how to cook and how to prepare food for the camera. Hmm. And then you have people like digital techs who handle everything that has to do with the photo going from the camera to the computer and the image from the computer going to the client. And then you have the photographer and each one of those has like their different skill sets and stuff like that. So, you know, Food can be, I guess, food photography can be completely 100% fake. And I would actually say that's where it's going. You know, Mm -hmm. most commercial food photography is going into the 3D realm, like car photography and stuff like that, um, to 100% natural, which is like 
what you see on Instagram with a lot of the food bloggers and stuff like that. Hmm. I would, I would also say you have to redefine food photography because it is, it is no longer commercial hundred percent like other areas of photography. There is an entire realm of food photography that is hundred percent not commercial. Yeah. And I would like, say it's, yeah, it's a lot like nature photography or, you know, a lot yeah. like, yeah, like that, you know, I, I definitely do not enjoy the kind of, you know, the sort of um, the, the mobile phone shows where people go like, look what I've had for dinner. <laughs> and you get this thing as you go, oh God, why? It's like, no need. There's no need for that. <laughs> yeah, How does, as an um, educator, also, I have to, as an educator, I also have to make a discernment between what's the, actually, in all photography, you have to make that discernment. Like, what is the end purpose for this photograph? Where yeah. Where is it planning on being displayed? Yeah. And that really, you know, makes the difference between, well, uh, it's only supposed to be for Instagram for my food blog. So it doesn't have to be that spectacular yeah. of an image, you know. And that is exactly, actually, exactly like portraiture, um, especially when you take headshot, you know, photography mm. as, as an example, you know, and that's, that's completely an absolute distinction. Sometimes, you know, you create um, a portrait or a headshot of somebody and you know that's going to be on a billboard. Uh, another time you create something, you know, for an email signature that's 180 by 180 pixels and the effort and the precision and everything else that goes into one or the other it differs wildly, of course, mm -hmm. you know, depending on what yeah, the I think that's, is. And that's just expanded so much recently, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, it was like you took pictures because you took pictures or you took pictures as a job. And now yeah. it's, it's like everyone can make pictures and also make a little bit of money. So there's like the whole gray area between professional photographers who solely work commercially yeah. and your average day person with a camera. You know, there's there's a huge gradation now where there wasn't in the past, I guess, you know. Mm. Yeah. How does it um, practically work for you on a shoot like the one you were just describing where you've got, you know, you're kind of, you, I'm going to call them food techs. For, for now yeah. <laughs> right you know sure. the majority of photographers end up working on their own um you know out there most of the time but when you're on a shoot like that where you've got people who look specialize in those different areas you were talking about who who has the final say at that moment um is it you as the photographer um or i'm guessing when you've got a team like that around you the 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 creative director or the the art director is is available but perhaps they're not there on the shoot how how does that practically work for you? Is there just pre-production happen for you so everybody's on the same page before you get to the shoot? Yeah, I'm okay, so that's a huge question. Um yeah. yes. Uh ultimate responsibility is on the photographer. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> ultimate decision is with the client, of course. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, uh, ultimate responsibility falls you know, the, if there's somebody to be responsible for the, the error of, of uh, the shoot, then it's the photographer. But the ultimate responsibility relies on the, whoever's managing the shoot, whether it's the client or the creative director or the art director. Mm -hmm. However, as a photographer, you should rely on your team. I mean, if, if you have a team, you know, and your team is very defined by like saying, this is the prop director and these are your responsibilities. This is the food stylist these are your responsibilities you know you're in a digital tech these are the, your responsibilities 
you're the assistant, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and as the photographer, you're kind of managing these people and hopefully building a good team around you. But if you get thrown into a team, like say you work for a client and that client has an in-house food stylist and an in-house prop stylist, which happens, especially with larger clients, um, you get thrown into that team. And then you kind of, I think, you know, you, you have the creative direction as the photographer to say, oh, no, that doesn't look good on camera. But you have to rely on their expertise because they're, you know, they're the professional in that yep. specific field. Mm. Unless you're, you know, unless you're everything, you have to rely on their expertise. And, and I think then the ultimate responsibility lies on the creative director or the art director, whoever's managing the shoot. Um, but yes, there's a ton of, there should be a ton of pre-production. I'm going to say there should be a ton of pre-production. Everything, every final, you know, little minute detail should be sussed out in the pre-production to make your life as the photographer and managing, you know, multiple people uh, easiest on, on set. I mean, ideally, you, you walk into the shoot, you go click, and that's it. Because everything Brilliant. is so pre-production, you know, all the pre-production is so fantastic that everything is done, and then you just push the button, and bam, you walk off, you, you throw the camera, you're like, I'm finished. What is that, like uh, Mike Myers, you know, like that that movie where he's like, snap, 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 yeah. he throws his camera, and done. Click, mic drop. <laughs> so yeah, I think exactly. you, you got to be Joel Grimes for that to happen. Right. <laughs> you just walk in, that's it, see ya. I mean... I do a lot of pre-production. So like for my, for my shoots, even the smaller shoots, um, I'll draw out each company. This is, this is my typical pre-production is I'll, I'll, I'll draw out or a sketch out, um, whether it's pen to paper or it's on my tab or whatever, I'll draw out the composition and I'll try to, to draw out the plates, the cups, the food, the light, even I'll give the, the prop shadow, you know, I'll just sketch out the shadow. So I know where the lighting is coming from. And that helps, you know, just those simple sketches, whether they're good or not, you know, those simple sketches will help the food stylist understand what's going on. It'll help the client understand before the shoot even gets, gets to going and it'll, it'll clarify things for them and they'll go, They'll either say, yes, that, that all looks fantastic, or, oh, instead of this here, maybe we'll put that there, you know? And so it helps kind of generate the ideas before the shoot happens. And then when you get the shoot, the big things are, did this thing cook well? Not your photography, so to speak. So it kind of like eliminates all the technical aspects of the shoot, and it allows you to just focus on the creative, you know? If you draw out everything and everything and everyone understands what is going on in the shoot, when you get to the shoot and you set up your camera, you set up your lights, all that stuff is taken care of and the food comes to the table. Most of the time, if you've done it right, all of your props are in their perfect positions already before the food comes. All of the little, you know, the little side stories, maybe, maybe it's a shot of like the perfect pasta, the pasta dish. And off to the side of the pasta dish is a little scene of somebody who had just chopped some parsley, you know, or something like that. And so 
You have things like cutting board, the knife, the parsley, all the little chopped pieces of parsley, all the little pieces of of uh, mess and stuff and crumbs and things around the table. All of that is 100% taken care of. And then the food, the main dish comes into frame. And all that's left is just pushing that that last final button of the, you know, that last trigger to fire the last shot. And then mm. in a perfect scenario, that is it. Food, mm. food, you know, gets taken off the table and you tear down and you go to the next shot uh, on the list. And that's, that's the perfect case scenario. However, nothing happens in a perfect world, I guess. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you might set all that stuff up and go, you know what? Actually, this dish looks better from another angle or something like that. Or it looks better if we remove this other stuff. But I think all the pre-production kind of allows you, um, it allows you like a buffer mm. to say, okay, this is what we planned. It's not working. Let me remove this. Okay, it works better, you know, now. And yeah. so you don't have to, you know, remake the dish and all that stuff. Or it allows you to see the mistakes that might possibly happen before the dish is even made. The worst thing is to 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 waste the cook's time. Whoever's preparing the food, yeah. the worst mm-hmm. thing is to waste their time because it yeah. it's it's like a restaurant. You know, you don't want to back up the orders because that's going to affect the next photo and the next photo and the next photo. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time shoots have at least five or six photos per day. You know, on a on a healthy day rate, you want to kind of block out five to six photos to be completed in that eight hour day. It's about 45 minutes of photo, you know, and that kind of comes with putting all the stuff on the table, organizing your compositions that you've already, you know, pre-production, you know, drawn out and stuff like that. It still takes time. It takes time to move the lighting into the perfect scenario. And while you're doing that, they're cooking the food. And if you don't do the pre-production, then there's no really... Uh, there's not enough time to create this environment, this entire scene, this entire story in your head on the spot while yeah. they're cooking the food. Now you have the pressure of them like, okay, yeah. I got 15 minutes until the steak is done. You got to come up with an idea, yeah. you know, and you're sitting there going, Oh, I don't know what to do. You know, should I throw a cutting board in there? I don't know. You know? <laughs> and then you come up with bad photography. And uh, I think oftentimes you see, a food photograph where the props don't really match the story or the lighting mm. doesn't match the story. There's just something off and you're like, why is that there? That's mm. most likely because it was a mistake in the pre-production, whether there was no pre-production or there was a mistake in the pre-production somewhere along the lines, you know, everything in that photograph should fit the story. And if it doesn't, it's because it was on the fly or it was a bad pre-production. I tell you what's really interesting um, about this for me is actually this, this sort of kind of confirms something uh, that I experienced during the last lockdown. So I, um, I make a mean guacamole. Um, it's, it's based on a, it's based on a recipe that I got from Billy Gibbons of, of ZZ Top. And it's a mean guacamole, but there's one problem. And, and there was one, um, at one time during the lockdown where I decided I had to photograph, I don't know why was it, but was it a little thing that we did? I can't. I, did. I don't remember now. Anyway, so I made a, a you know, created this um, this flat lay with this guacamole. But the problem with that guacamole is, is that when you first make it, it has this vibrant color, 
and the sheen to it. And it looks great. And it's like a gazillion and a half of different stuff that goes in it. But the problem with it is, is that within minutes, it starts to go brown. And so I knew that I didn't have long. I basically knew that I basically had to make the thing, throw it in, in my set and shoot it. Because if I waited for too long and I was, you know, if I started fuffing around with like things on the side or whatever, then, uh, you know, I would, I would lose it and it'd be it. So, so I kind of worked it very similar to, to what you're describing in a sense that I put the set together first and I kind of thought about all the ingredients that are in there. And I had like little tops with like different ingredients on the side and, you know, to create, to create the whole composition and the whole thing. And then the last thing literally that had to come was the actual bowl with the guacamole. It went straight in a little bit of stuff on the top and, uh, you know, click the button and that was it. But all of the pre-production really made that possible. Would have never been possible to do it the other way around and start mm -hmm. with the food and then build everything around that. So that is the ticket. That's the entire reason for pre-production is because, yeah. especially with food photography, I mean, it, Pre-production is important in every area of sure. photography or filmmaking, right? But with food photography, there's an actual need for pre-production. And that's, mm. you know, that the food is going to die like within yeah. five minutes. Like with <laughs> yeah. guacamole, you can, you know, you can add a little lemon juice and it'll preserve the <laughs> amount that. of time. Yeah. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> but but um, I always say that your last picture is your best picture. Because in food photography, the last picture is usually when the food comes into the scene. Yes. You know, so it's always when you're cycling through like, uh, you know, the hundred pictures that you took during the day or whatever, it's always the last one that's going to be the best yeah. one. So you might as well just not even look at the 99 previous images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all the like, you know, the lighting setups and the composition bits and like, you know, um, and I like, I don't know, I like busy flat lace is just what I like doing yeah. this a lot of it's we've talked about this on the podcast a lot we um you know when it, whether it's environmental portraits or whatever it is I always like to work on a set I like to spend hours putting a set together putting things into position like you know dirtying yeah. stuff up and then the actual shoot is like done in 20 minutes you know but yeah. the pre-production just took like three hours <laughs> we did a we did an environmental portrait with a Ferrari a few months ago and it was exactly like that it was basically it was, yeah. took hours to put the set together and put everything in place um and then the actual the actual shoot itself mm -hmm. was over very quickly you know because everything was already we just had to put the person in that was the the final thing you know yeah i think as a photographer that's 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 how you should think about it because you know let's say it does take hours for pre-production you know and then the client rolls up the Ferrari's there, you snap the picture, you're like, I'm finished. That kind of only mm. makes, it makes you look more of a, of a professional, you <laughs> yeah. know, because you're like, they're, they're like, oh, wow, this guy's got a great image in like 20 minutes. It's super easy. Yeah. You know, and they don't notice the, oh, well, he did three days of pre-production. He drew out the compositions and you planned yeah. everything to the T, you know, prior to that. They don't see any of that. Yeah. I mean, some, you know, somebody along the line is going to see that, but you know, yeah. the, the, the head chef or the food and beverage manager on a food shoot, you know, they don't know that really. They just walk in and go, wow, he, he just took a picture in five minutes. It looks beautiful. Yeah. yeah I could do that with my phone. No problem. Yeah, the, funny, the, the funny thing, you know, the funny thing about, <laughs> about that particular shoot was that, that the, the client, so to say, was, uh, was expecting it to be, you know, quite a sort of a luxury type, type shoot. And, um, we, when we oh, arrived on this, 
they just wanted to hang out. They're like, darn well, it, you're too fast. We wanted to hang out. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was like, you know, we, we arrived on the, on the set or on the, on the location and, um, and we, what we didn't know, and this is, you know, our mistake was in a sense that we hadn't visited the, uh, the, the location beforehand, but basically the, the images that we, that we got before, before the shoot were, were very clean, you know, clean walls, clean floor, clean lines, you know, because kind of okay, well, we can do this, you know, it could be cool, um, and make it kind of stylish and you know, very, like a very clean looking image. But when we got there, we realized that what they hadn't shown us on the photographs beforehand was that the other side of the place was like full of dirty, like, like tools and like dust. And like, and immediately I went, right, let's change tact here. What we, what we should really be doing would be a lot cooler would be to put this luxury car into the dirtiest of environments you could possibly imagine. Like the Dirty, oily, old, oh, yeah. like, the you contrast. know, garaged. Yeah, contrast, exactly. Yeah. You know? And so, and so the client, although, although had, uh, although he loved the idea, he obviously had, he had prepared himself with like, you know, very kind of upmarket clothing, but we found a really. And slippers. Yeah, and, and slippers. <laughs> the driving, what's the driving shoes? <laughs> That's the, actually the same in food photography. It's a nice little trick. A uh, clean background with a messy subject. Right. And a messy and a, a messy background with a clean subject. It always seems to work because of the contrast. Yeah, yeah juxtaposition you know? yeah. is a, is a the thing. juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah it's juxtaposition. Yeah. And right. so uh, we, you know, so we, uh, uh, by, as we were pulling out all these old tools and this dusty stuff, you know, um, we found this old raggedy overall you know, um, which is like covered in paint and like it was grease and, grease oil, and oil and everything. And, and we just went, perfect. Put it now, on. we just have to get him into this thing. <laughs> Great. Uh, but he was a good sport, actually. He played along. Of course he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, cool. And I mean, was, yeah. the resulting image, I like it. It's, it's kind of cool. It, it turned out it turned out a lot better than, I, than, than we had originally planned. And it was just, yeah. it was actually just because we changed, um, we changed our plans at the last it's minute. It's by far the best image we could have gotten that, like that particular sure. location. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have been. A, you know, I mean, you know, luckily this wasn't a commercial client in the sense that this was meant to be for a particular campaign, you know, um, so we had the flexibility. It would have been different if that had been a very definitive brief for something very specific, yeah. which it wasn't. And we, we've, we've talked about this before on, on, on the podcast that, um, I'm a big fan of pre-production, massive, massive fan of yeah. planning and making <laughs> sure everybody knows what they're doing, what we're going in to achieve, um, why we're achieving what we're achieving. So everybody's on the same page anyway. But having said that, you need the ability once you arrive there to, to switch and change and be flexible and agile to go, you know what? I've got a better You idea. know those two days of things we just did? Mm. Yeah, still important. Actually, a lot of that we can take through, but yeah. throw that half of that away for a minute. This is how we we're gonna we should should be going about it because it's going to end up to be a better shot. And at the end of the day, that's what you want. You want the best shot possible. Of course. But I think there's elements in the pre-production process that no matter how much you change it, you're always gonna bring a, you know some of that totally. pre-production into to that totally. shot. a lot of people call me like a tripod nazi but 
because there's like a huge debate on whether you should use a tripod or not in food photography. Like some people are like, oh, I like the freedom to move around the table and find the best angle. And I'm like, well, if you really thought about the subject and you really pre, you know, you did a lot of pre-pro and you, you drew out your composition, then you should know where your camera is going to be because that's going to be where that subject looks the best. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can use a tripod then, right? You don't have to like, I don't know, walk around your table. And for me, and this is kind of like overarching with all photography, for me, I like the style to the camera. So like the camera's fixed and I make the frame to that. Even mm-hmm. like with nature photography, I, I'll use a tripod you know, a lot of times. And it's because um, I'm thinking about all the little pieces, the corners of the frame and all that stuff. And I want to make sure everything in the frame is copacetic. But I also want to save time. Like with food photography, I use the tripod because if I move the camera angle, the lighting's going to change. The reflection's going to change. Where mm-hmm. the shadows fall mm-hmm. will change, you know. Yeah. How the props look, you know, because it's a 2D frame, it's a 2D perspective, and you're trying to make a 3D picture, you know, so, you know, the, how the props look will change if you move the camera angle and all that kind of stuff. And so I like to suss that out in the pre-production and then I can use a tripod and then I don't have to worry about camera shake or shutter speed or anything like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, always be open to everything just completely being thrown away and starting fresh on set. But that only comes with practice and you can only do right. that if you have the skills to do that, you know, that's, that's what separates between being a photographer, like a pro photographer and amateur photographers being able to think on your feet, I guess, during, during that small window of time that you have, you know, to please the client during the shoot. And that's a combination of experience and actually having learned your craft, (laughs) you know, in in the years preceding, right. It's, well, the thing is, like you know, with it, with experience comes the ability to to uh, you know break to the rules. The of, well, to break the rules under pressure, you know, yeah. this is the thing because because yeah. that's a real thing. I think um, you know when when you work and whether your client is there, whether the art director is there looking over your shoulder, or whether your client is nowadays very often like online, you know, monitoring what's happening. That's that's a certain amount of pressure. Um, yeah, you know, that's that I think you need to have the, the experience to really, to be able to, to, to function as that. At least for me, that's, that's certainly true. That's totally right. Experience yeah. breeds confidence, right? And yeah, if sure. you, you need to be confident in that situation to just make the change, cause you know what it is you're going to do. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Well, there's, there's the monetary pressure too. I mean, a lot of times yeah. people don't think about that with it, with a mm-hmm. shoot, with a professional shoot, you have a lot of money. A lot of money is at stake. Yeah. on a professional shoot, especially a food photographer. I mean, food photography shoots are probably the least, but it's still a lot of money going into that kind of shoot. You know, you have yeah. the day rates of the food stylist, the prop stylist, the, you know, the client themselves, the food that's being thrown into the bin after the shoot. You know, there's that money. And sometimes that can be a lot of money. There's your rate. Um, uh, whatever else is perishable, you know, time, all those things are perishable, you know, and if you mess up a shoot, um, that could be a lot of money. You should have insurance yeah. for that, for sure. Oh, yeah. And it, yeah. Could, it could potentially, you know, it could potentially cost you more than you bargained for, you know, in the end. Yes. So 
Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a thing. Um, I want to talk to you about your stop motion work as okay. well because because I I mean I love stop motion. I think you know we're, yeah. we can speak for Nick as well. Um, but there's there's been some really interesting stuff um, that I've seen you do that I haven't really quite worked out how that actually how that worked. There's like one what? particular one um, okay. where there's a cherry, <laughs> and it it goes into her into her cell phone, yeah, and then it goes into a drink. <laughs> how the hell? Yeah, okay. <laughs> how did that All work? Right. Um, it's a really simple one, actually. That one I did for Samsung. Yeah. So I recently just got sponsored by Samsung, which was huge. It's huge for me. And I know people that they're like, oh, he's always talking about sponsors. But this is what like pays me to do Instagram and YouTube. Otherwise, I wouldn't be on there at all. I'd just be focusing 100% on commercial work and clients and stuff. So I am a starving artist, for sure. Um, so Samsung sponsored me. And this is, this is absolutely huge this year. Um, and they they wanted me to do an Instagram post. And for me, I'm not really one to just take a picture of myself with some gear. I'm not a celebrity. Like, who cares if I'm holding the phone? So I wanted to make something, like all this, the posts that I do for Samsung, I want to make sure that they're like creatively inspiring, that people like photographers would watch them and go, oh, that's kind of cool. How did they do that? You know, so that's... All of my ads that I do for my clients on YouTube and social media, I want to make sure that they have like there, there's a bar there where it's like uh, that work is kind of creative, I guess. Mm. More than just be holding the cell phone and some earbuds in my head or whatever. Um, so I thought, well, how am I? They had a summer special. That was the idea. It's like uh, music for the summer or something like that. They they wanted to promote that you can get free music if you signed up to Samsung or something like that or whatever. Mm. And um, so I was thinking, okay, how do I make this summer vibe with a phone and have it relate to food? And um, so I, I thought, well, I could do a stop motion where it involved the drink. And then I had to figure out how to put the phone in there because that's the product. So... I was like, well, what happens if um, the cherry kids with stop motion? I'm always looking for a character, mm-hmm. and so that the the cherry is going to be my character. And I I was thinking, okay, it could uh, jump into my scene and jump through the phone and up the glass and into drink and like pop the umbrella. Like it's mm-hmm. like it's going to the beach. Like the cherry is going to the beach, and the beach just happens to be this awesome cocktail. Okay. So that was the premise behind the, the thought process there. And um, the way I did it was I, I photographed the phone. So all of the stop motion before it touches the phone is from a camera. And then I was thinking originally that I could just change my camera's position and photograph the cherry going up the glass and then superimpose that onto the phone because it would be higher resolution. You know, than if I was to take a phone picture or something like that. But then that that wasn't working because I don't have a lens that's the same perspective as the natural lens on the camera, on the phone camera, you know? Mm. And so I was thinking like, okay, if I 
can film this or you know photograph this uh, as a stop motion up until the point where it reaches the phone, then maybe I could try to photograph it with the phone camera after that point. And so mm -hmm. it's actually two stop motions, I guess. So it's one until mm -hmm. it reaches the phone and then after it reaches the phone, it's a stop motion from the phone, you know, from the camera of the phone. Yeah. Um, and then I blended it together into one piece. And I made the cherry move with the wire. I just Photoshopped the wire out. So I, I took the cherry and I poked it onto the wire and then I just held it in my hand. And so as it jumps up into the phone and then up the glass, it's all with a wire. And I just Photoshopped the wire out. Um, but there's also some other little things there that I did. Like I Photoshopped... Uh, there's a little circular bit where it shows you the preview of the image on the phone. Mm -hmm. And if you look closely, that is also a stop motion. And I just took the original stop motion and right. I shrunk it down and I cropped a little circle out of it. And then I pasted mm -hmm. it onto the phone. Because right. as you're photographing a phone and if you're trying to include the phone in the stop motion, there's also these little graphics on the phone that you have to kind of recreate in Photoshop or somehow... Yeah get them to make it look realistic because the camera app in your phone has all these lines and circles and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. where it shows you the picture and all that doesn't that doesn't appear in a normal stop motion you know or, or a normal video for that matter so yeah so i had to recreate all each one of those little lines there's like with the samsung there's like three little lines and then like a square and like an arrow underneath mm -hmm. the, the the photo app you know, so yeah. I had to recreate that in Photoshop and also the little circle in Photoshop. And yeah. it's like a mix of Photoshop and yeah, more Photoshop. <laughs> How long did it take you to put all of that together from shooting to editing? That, that was really quick. That was kind of like, I had the idea in pre-production. I just had the idea. And then as soon as I got to the table, I realized that the idea didn't work at all. And so after that point, it was all just kind of on the fly. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I can make this stop motion with my camera, you know, until it reaches the phone. And then I tried to move my camera and I spent a couple hours trying to find a, the right lens and the right camera position that would give me the perspective that you would think you would see on the phone camera, you know, mm. to make it look realistic. I can that that didn't work. And so I just said, you know what? Screw it. I'll just take the picture from, I'll just make the stop motion from the phone. And then I'll use, so like the cherry moves across the frame and that's one stop motion. And then I kind of, once it touches the phone, I kind of pause the frame and that's a still image. And then I just mask out the square that is the, or the rectangle that is the foam camera perspective and then that's another stop motion and everything else is just a still image you know mm. and if that makes sense does that make any sense yeah yeah a little bit yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you haven't seen it and this doesn't make yeah. any sense as to what, you, what exactly. everybody's what we're talking <laughs> about here go watch it <laughs> well yeah. in fact we could put it into this podcast if you haven't seen it. It, yes yeah you'll see it now so this right. is this is a fascination with mine, actually, is combining stop motion with video, with photography. 
and trying to blend all of those into one single. There's actually another stop motion I did. It was the first campaign on Instagram that I did for uh, Samsung, where it's like the phone is sitting on the table and it's kind of this like inception thing. It's mm. going, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you can watch it on my Instagram. It's basically the the stop motion starts and then the camera pulls out and you notice it's a phone and then it just continuously pulls out kind of like a infinite reflection on a mirror. Mm-hmm. And, um, very cool. You know, when you, when you start a, a video stream on your computer and you record yourself and that, that infinite mirrored image happens, I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to re- replicate that in stop motion. And so I tried that. And so, there's a drink off to one side and the drink is like rotating with ice cubes. And that's yeah. a video. Right. And then I was going to ask you how you did the, that. Yeah. Then the watch, <laughs> if you, there's a watch in the frame and you can see the watch face, that's also a video. Hmm. And then the rest of it is stop motion with like the limes rolling across the table and then pulling out of the frame is, you know, video animation inside of editing. And so it's kind of a combination of all these different techniques into one. And that's, that's where I'm more fascinated in is because stop motion is fun, but there's other things that you can do now with digital photography. And mm-hmm. like, I really love blending video and stop motion together. I have a couple cool. of videos yeah. where like I'm talking and stop motion is happening in front of me and stuff. That's cool. I think that's really cool. I like what the whole Mary using... Poppins aspect. Yeah. <laughs> what are you using to blend all these things together? Yeah. Uh, Premiere, yeah. uh, Photoshop, Premiere, and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Mary Poppins did it best. You guys see Mary Poppins. You guys in England oh, love yeah. Mary Poppins. It's your favorite movie, right? Dick, Dick Van Dyke's accent's the best. It's the best British accent ever. Uh, it yeah. doesn't get any better than that, does it? You <laughs> know. Exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, like, you know that scene in Mary Poppins where they're cleaning up their toys in the room? And it's a mix of video and stop motion, which is really yeah. cool. And that's that's how they did it back in the day, you know. And I think a lot of those old techniques brought into the new uh, the new yeah. space, I think, is really cool. I want to continue to do more of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah this, this yeah. is kind of Harryhausen but, effect, you know. That's that like really stop motion kind of look. I think that's that's really yeah. really interesting. I was watching on um, there's a a short series on Netflix at the moment called something the the movies that made us oh yes yeah like, yeah it's got back to the future in it yeah, and, yeah. but the one that's sticking out in my mind with what we're talking about here is uh jurassic park oh yeah and that came out in like 93 94 something there or thereabouts and they originally were going to do it all in all, all of the dinosaur stuff as stop motion right and they got them started, they got them started and they, I forget the company's name, but they were just getting into digital and, you know, computers doing, um, you know, CGI as we call it now. Mm. And he, he said, no, no, we can, we can do it. And I said, no, 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 we've got, got so-and-so doing, doing this. And then they went and did it secretly mm-hmm. and built the skeleton. They built the, oh, right. all, all of that kind of stuff. And they just at one screening they just left it on a monitor just as they were entering and they all walked in steven spielberg was there and you walk you walked in and go what the f- what's that oh oh it's just something we were working on it's just there's nothing you know and he looked at it i want that no, right. <laughs> and that's how 
it became um, the Jurassic Park that we mm-hmm. know. They then sat down and did all of it like that. But then they felt so bad for the guy that was doing stop motion, who did all the stop motion back then, that they got him in to um, consult on doing like, you know, the way di- they, he things, believes yeah. dinosaurs would move and things like that. You know? yeah. And that was kind of the death of stop motion. At that well, there was an interesting thing um, on when I did The Empire Stri- Strikes Back. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the battle scenes on Hoth where you've got the ad-ads walking across yep. um, the, the surface, across yeah, the yeah. snow. And um, the interesting thing there was when they, they so they had this, this, this stage set up, you know, and, and all the models on it. And we're doing the stop motion and it just didn't look real at all. It looked like models. Until somebody figured that what we should be seeing is some degree of motion blur. And that's really what's mm-hmm. missing. And so what the way they ingeniously did that was that they put the whole set on a vibrating platform. So every time they took a frame, the whole thing was ever so slightly vibrating. Oh, that that is amazing. Yeah, and so simple when you think about it. But what that did was it basically blended that natural motion blur with the stop motion. And that's why um, these movements seemed, for the time, of course, a lot more fluid. Um, of course, when you watch it back now, it's a little, oh yeah, that's stop motion, but because we're used to CGI and all the rest of it, but, um, but it's still well, pretty damn good. Uh, yeah. CGI. I think too the, far, the blend of video and stop motion has been going on for so long. Mm. I mean, all the way back to color, you know, when color first arrived and it's such an old technique that to lose it, I, I think would be sad. So I think it needs to be continued oh, on sure. and. Yeah, I'd love to do it any way I possibly can. Anytime I get a chance, I'll blend mm. video and stop motion together because I think it's it's fascinating. It's like the coolest video trick you could ever do. You know? oh, yeah. So we've come to the end of this week's episode, episode 72 of the Camera Shake podcast. This week with Skylar Bird. Skylar, it was an absolute education yes, having man. you on the show. Thank you, man. It was great being here. I really appreciate your inviting. Fantastic. So... Um, if you like this uh, this episode, make sure you well make sure you like it. Um, if you're watching this episode on YouTube, of course, you know do us a flavor and um, hit the subscribe button. Um, you know, ring the bell thingy. You know, and all the all the rest of that. Also, before I forget, two very important things. We are going to be at the photography show mm. um, in Birmingham from September the 19th to the 20th. So we're going to be there um, on the Sunday and the Monday. If you want to come say hello do that we would really appreciate that um and of course as always if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast make sure you head over to youtube youtube.com forward slash um camera shake um did i forget anything um join our community we together (laughs) (laughs) cool Uh, of course if you like what you heard in this uh, podcast all of Skylar's details are going to be in the description so make sure you check that out that'd be super awesome now if you weren't 100% sure, it's actually Birmingham we'll be in. Birmingham? Not, not Birmingham. Oh, is it not Birmingham? No. Is it Birmingham? Not in this country. <laughs> how, do you say, how do you say, is it Birmingham? Birmingham? Oh, Birmingham. Yeah, you yeah. get to say it with a slight whine. I think yeah. that's... <laughs> We've yeah, just lost Birmingham. all of our listeners yeah. in Birmingham. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, that being said, we have truly come to the end of episode 72. We will see you again next Thursday. As always, take it easy. See you then.